This episode is brought to you by Argumentation Theory Services. That's ATS. ATS has been the premier manufacturer of conclusions using the process of logical reasoning via their patented claims-based approach. As you know, their fine conclusions are honed from one or more premises. Each premise can be tailored just for you out of either high-quality or refurbished materials. Do you need a conclusion but you don't have self-evident empirical evidence? Argumentation Theory Services is the answer for you. Do you need help making a collaborative decision? Then call an ATS representative and order their deliberation and negotiation products. Are you trying to teach a concept? Use their intuitive didactic dialogue. Perhaps all you care about is winning a debate with a soon-to-be former Facebook friend. You're going to want their heuristic dialogue tool. And now our listeners can try out their Scholastic Mint, Angel a Month service, for six months free. Each month you'll receive a package with a different angel to proudly dance on your finely crafted display pinhead. Just go to their website and use the promo code REREAD, one word, and you'll be immediately signed up to get your first angel in a few days. Nuriel, the angel of hailstorms. And thank you, Argumentation Theory Services, for sponsoring the Rereading Wolf podcast. Warning. The following discussion is deliberately riddled with spoilers and unhinged speculation on this nearly 40-year-old book, Gene Wolfe's The Book of the New Sun. You can't read a Gene Wolfe story. You can only reread a Gene Wolfe story. Welcome to Rereading Wolf. We'll abandon the literary artifice that this is the first time you and we have read these books. We're going to try to understand, and that means considering the books as a whole. Hi, I'm James Wynn. And I'm Craig Brewer. Hello there, Corvin. <laughs> And uh, hi, Auger. I'll put it that way. <laughs> yeah. Is it pronounced the same? Is yes. it pronounced Auger? Okay. Yeah, it's okay. exactly the same, but there, and with, with a slight change in spelling. Over email, we were working on long sun names for each other. So Auger was the name that I always regretted not jumping in and claiming. And I liked that we actually did a little etymology of yours too. When people started to post augers and then you posted a picture of the auger snail, we actually saw, ah, oh, that's why the tool might be named after the snail or vice versa. We don't know which one, but yeah, definitely looks like a little screw thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah it makes sense that I would have the name auger because I'm kind of twisted and boring. So <laughs> I didn't think it was boring. I thought it was that you drill down and then it was something about being very persuasive. Yeah. Drill, and drill, drill. I wear them down. Yes. Yeah. I'm persistent. <laughs> yeah, very persistent. So. And I crawl along the bottom of the ocean blindly feeling for detritus and vulnerable opportunities. <laughs> and I appreciated that for me, you didn't just call me a doom monger and a complete naysayer. Like I kind of did. Yes, I did. Well, you did. You did. But it was it was a different name than just a raven. Like I wasn't just an omen of doom. It's Corvin, which is a different name. It's a little yeah. more Latin. Seems a little classic, but yeah. but still the same thing. So, but at least you don't have yeah. to like put it right in your face. So, so the I appreciate that. Is that that Craig sits on his bust of palace and naysays all of my pleasant new daydreams, and <laughs> it's very appropriate. I could perch on a bust for my life. <laughs> but yeah, if we need to resurrect the old long sun habit of having names for people 
one, at least in our little tiny Facebook yeah. group, we could do that. But then people would have to actually like change their avatars and then no one else would know what they're talking about. <laughs> well, oh yeah, I would, that would be great. Yeah. Everyone should pick out their own long son name. Remember it's, it's animals and animal parts for maleish people and photosynthetic life and plant-based parts for those of the feminine persuasion. And for those bots that we purchased to fluff up our Twitter and Instagram accounts, you'll have to use mineral names. <laughs> yep. Yeah. And I don't know if the, if the binary gender thing is a little too last century, then maybe we'd have to come <laughs> up with something, but we do have, right. We've got, you know, photosynthetic plants. Someone brought up what is fungi. So, you know, maybe there's something. There's always there. an opportunity. Yeah. yeah could figure it out and um plus in the end we're all gonna evolve into green men where we're both animals and photosynthetic plants so yeah so those categories will break down eventually oh hey craig we have corrections Michael Andre Driussi wrote to us on email to set us straight on a few things. Uh, it's always like that one's like getting corrected by your dad. <laughs> <laughs> age, age, notwithstanding. <laughs> First, there's the mensal. Uh, that's we, we mentioned that they from a distance they see a building and they say it's the mensal of the monarchs and. We talked about it. I, I think mostly I talked about it with the assumption that the cathedral and the mensal of the monarchs was a kind of the same thing, were the just one building. But Michael's under the impression it's a different building, a permit building. What he says was, as I understand it, the building in question is a brick and mortar building, a permanent building. It's not a few blocks away. It's close enough that Severian can smell spices from it. Craig has questions about. Wolf's use of mensal, which is one thing, but Wolf's use here of mortar is perhaps as difficult since the same word is used for brick glue and grinding bowl. That's yeah. And I remember when I read it, I assumed it was different, but as soon as we started talking, you pointed things out and I was like, oh, it could well be the same thing. So I, then when Michael corrected us, then I had sort of, you know, changed my memory and I was like, no, we were intentionally talking about whether or not it was ambiguous or not. And so right. now when I, I haven't gone back to listen to the actual part at this point to remind myself exactly <laughs> what was going on, but I'm still kind of convinced that it's a little ambiguous at this point. Well, Michael says, is Severian saying he smells the allspice from the grinding that the brother is doing right there, or he smells it because the spice was shoveled into the brick glue way back when. I have taken it as Severian smelling the fresh churros over the local Dutch brothers. That is, that the monks run a bakery. Then again, the detail of Fort Columns now makes me think of the Narthrex of Gaudy Cathedral. Hmm. I just like the idea of them like grinding spices into the actual <laughs> mortar so that their buildings smell good. I just think that's gorgeous. Well, let's take a look at that text. They say, uh, what is that building over there? The one with the vermilion roof and the forked columns. I think there's allspice pounded in the mortar. At least I smell something of that sort from it. The mensal of the monarchs. That's what we get. Now, I think Severian thinks there's spice pounded in the mortar because he smells it. He assumes 
there's mortar. We don't know that there's actually mortar or that it may, perhaps it could be something from the grinding bowl. Now, I have always assumed the mensal of the monarchs is the tent, and that's for two reasons. One, why build a brick and mortar building near a tent for people who are going to up and leave soon anyway? The tent must be rarely set up in the commons because the driver doesn't even know it's there. On the other hand, one of the reasons I think the race could be set up by Agia in advance is because the tent is visible before the race. But the Pelerines are pilgrims. They travel around. So that's the first thing. And the forking columns, I thought, are just painted on. It's what makes the cathedral look so permanent. Anyway, from a storytelling aspect, it makes sense that Severian sees the cathedral looking so permanent before they plow into it and discover all its fabric. It could be. And and if it was another building, um, it could be. And, and then in that case, then I think we're thinking about the term monarchs, not monarchs, but monarchs is that... Mm -hmm. Is monarchs like if monarch is traditionally used for male monks rather than the nuns, then maybe it is a different structure. And then no, maybe no, they I, built the tent. Well, in I looked, the, the first reference was a nun, and okay. but also for monks. Okay, yeah, that's that's yet another question. Like maybe then the Pellerine set up the tent just next to a monastery that had been there. Right, um, hard to say. Right. But yeah, if you feel like there's a reading of those passages that clarifies things, let us know. Yeah. Maybe there's some textual references that we're not appreciating. Also, Michael suggested something that made me consider the scene with Raucho differently a little bit. When Agia says the other Fayakers been carting that whore for half the night, I always imagined Raucho and the prostitute rolling around town all night. But perhaps, in fact, that cart is her establishment. Just because she's a streetwalker doesn't mean she has to be a street walker. Why walk when you can ride? Could be. Yeah. Could be. And Michael did say, too, that I think we mentioned that Racho was driving at some point. He, he thought we said that. I, I, if we said that, that was a mistake. I never assumed that he was driving. Right. All right. Let's do some comments. Let's start with one I especially like. In episode one three, the Autark's face. We talk about the name of the Manichin Tower. That is, that it's based on the Manichin sword dances. Wolf himself made this connection in the castle of the Otter. But as you know, I've always found that association insufficient. It makes sense. It connects to the culture of the setting. But so on the Rereading Wolf podcast subreddit, a poster, Twinkie Gorilla, posted a really interesting take on the word Madigen. It was the spark that got things going. But then Lord of Atlantis responded with a definition of an online Spanish dictionary. I had to use Google Translate to read it. Craig, how did we miss this? I was wondering that too. So in these dictionaries, the definition number one is a, a dance or a bully or a buffoon. But definition two is a butcher, the employee of a slaughterhouse, which is not to discount the conquest dance that Wolf referenced directly. But this word has two separate meanings that must have attracted Wolf. One for the way the guild thinks of itself and one for the way everyone else thinks of them. So I posted this in the Facebook group and it just 
took off Earthless style and wild tangents, including a conversation with Michael Grant and David Stockoff about the first Severian theory. So much fun. See the show notes for the link. And I want to say thanks too, because I learned so much about Spanish dictionaries, because I went <laughs> off on a tangent of trying to find what is the Spanish Oxford English Dictionary? Is there one? Is there something like that? Oh. And found that there's like a massive debate about producing one. And some people think there is one that ought to be. But I mean, honestly, Spanish is a much wider living language than English mm -hmm. is right now. So I think it's it's harder to do precisely that. Right. There, perhaps there needs to be one for, you know, almost every country. So. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Also, I got an interesting insight in that thread about various ways people are enjoying the various channels related to this podcast. David Stockoff asked a question. Remember, this is the Rereading Wolf podcast Facebook group. And he remarked that he'd never listened to a single episode. So if you ever get mad at David, send us a note, <laughs> we'll read it on the air, and he'll never know. Yeah, this is the way. We can slander him. With <laughs> When we started, I always assumed that everyone would start at episode 1-1 and then just listen progressively to each one. A lot of people do, but clearly that is not the way it is for everyone. I see the numbers and I can see that we'll often get a huge spike for certain chapters and drop-offs for others. Obviously, a lot of people are just dropping in for their favorite chapters. This must stop. Just, <laughs> just kidding. You're all welcome to do with these episodes what you want. It shows how naive I am about these things. We, we listen to podcasts very personally between our earbuds, and we never really confer with others about how they enjoy them. So we're probably getting a lot of Fabio fans on this one right now. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I hope so. Which, hello. Welcome. <laughs> Como você está? Ah, yes. Speaking of Michael Grant, he initiated a conversation on the Facebook group about the very Wolfian interchange in Chapter 11, where Thecla is excruciated on the revolutionary. Gerlois makes a comment about the witches, and Thecla says, who are the witches? And Gerlois says, I'm afraid we don't have time to go into that now. Severian will tell you when you get back to yourself. But of course, he never does. So thus began a talk about witches. What we know about them, what we don't. What can I say, Craig? My cup of tea. We'll even ask Fabio here in a few minutes. Good idea. Elsewhere on the subreddit for the last episode, Goonhands found the conversation on the last chapter, the destruction of the altar, thought-provoking. He says, I always thought the claw was the ultimate red herring. Maybe not. This relic certainly serves to focus Severian's belief in the increate. He starts out seeing himself as the rightful protector of the claw, and from there he makes the leap that he has been chosen by the Increate to bring the light to the world. He seems to go from non-believer to believer. Hmm. On the Rereading Wolf Facebook group, Jordan Flato also had some thoughts about Severian's street race last chapter. We agreed that the claw falling into Severian's possession less than 24 hours after he left the tower was really coincidental. Is it a sign that Severian was being manipulated by the Hieros, the Megatherians, the Increate, or the first Severian? Jordan is a first Severian skeptic. Jordan says that this scene is demonstrative of the, quote, the absolute and staggering genius of the author who created such a mythic fractal tale where so much of the interiority of the text can be so carefully and skillfully rendered in such a small bit of action that is at once visceral and allegorical. Also, 
He says, What I love about this moment is that allegorically, it is a perfect reflection of the possibility of Severian being manipulated throughout. The claw is a symbol of Severian's quest, an enormous part of his discovery and movement toward the appreciation and communion with the divinity, especially when he discovers it's just a common thorn, thus entirely real. So here we have Severian at the start of his journey, following a woman, having a seemingly random encounter, roll d20, that leads him into the tent of the Pelerines, only to have the focus of the entirety of the mythos he himself will go on to create surreptitiously stolen and planted on his person, thereby setting the stage for nearly the entirety of the hero's journey he is about to undertake. Jordan finds this to be the moment that sets so much of the plot, both future and past, into motion, and it contains a nearly perfect, quote, fractal recursion of Severian, the faithful hero, being manipulated without his knowledge by either larger forces or fate or some combination of both. This scene echoes in such solemnity with nearly everything else in the text and must be fully accounted for in any really good exegesis of the text. Who sets Asia on this path is a really, really hard question, one I'm not sure I have an answer for, but it can't be hand-waved away. Here, here, Jordan. Yeah, it was just incredibly well put um, to bring up all the both problems, but also what I feel like the payoff of it is at yeah. the same time. I mean, really, Why how do you mix the manipulation and the sense of manipulation, no matter who's doing it, whether whether you buy the first Severian thing or not? If it's not first Severian, it's the High Rose or Nere or something's going on. But no matter what, this is a moment that is obviously totally filled with luck and yet sets the whole thing going. And if anything is supposed to have meaning, then it's also somehow supposed to be manipulated. That being said, neither the manipulation nor the sort of predestination of it cancel each other out. Like mm -hmm. this is what I think is so fascinating about it and so well put in the way he, he described it. So yeah, absolutely. And there's so many comments on the Facebook group. I can't possibly summarize them all. Check it out, man. And we got a review on Apple Podcasts. This is by M. Reed F. I think I know who this listener is. The title, <laughs> the title is Long Overdue Review of My Favorite Podcast. Aww. He said, says, I love this podcast. Metz and Phil of the Alzebo Soup Podcast approach the works as adoring but jaded skeptics. Brandon and Glenn of the Gene Wolfe Literary Podcast as reverent pilgrims at the Holy of Holies. But James Wynn and Craig Brewer hit me where I live. They approach New Sun as hyper-literate fanboys. This is not a dig. They seem like the best kind of fanboys <laughs> with pure intentions and loads of pertinent info and somehow carve out a grand canyon of real estate in the nichiest of niches. There's the wackiest of fan theories right next to granular, almost sentence-by-sentence -sentence analysis, and it's all outrageously entertaining and enlightening. Highest possible recommendation for any Wolf fan who's read through the entire solar cycle at least once. Well, that's one darned accurate review, Craig. 
And I love the nichiest of niche because when I tell sudden people that I have a podcast, it's hard to explain that, okay, well, it's already <laughs> the third out there on this one guy. It's the second on the book that's already happened. And it's the second one that kind of has the same format as another one. Um, I don't bother going into that, but I love that. that yeah, totally. Well, heck, there's must be dozens of Westworld podcasts. There that's should true. be at least three that's for this. Wolf one. deserves them. Wolf yeah. deserves as much as he can get. But thank you so much for that. And and it just, it's a little sort of heart fluttery moment. It's very <laughs> cool. So in this episode, we're going to be joined by Brazilian author and journalist, Fabio Fernandez, author of the Rereading Wolf series of articles on the tour.com site. No relation, but what a great name, Fabio. <laughs> totally coincidental. We promise we did not steal it because I think it came out, what, just a little bit before we started. Right. But yeah, yeah. Great minds. <laughs> also, next year, they'll be publishing his first short story collection, Love and Archaeology. It'll be in English. So watch out for that. Yeah, I think it's his first in English. He's had others in Portuguese, but this is the first first oh. translation. Or And I don't know if it's translated by him. He may, he may well have translated himself. Um, but yeah, I believe it's his first short story collection in English to come out. Awesome. Uh, I'll post a link to his tour articles in the show notes. And you'll notice this is the first time of a couple chapters where we're going to have some guests come on because I, I think it's pretty clear that the chapters that we're getting into here with the botanic gardens and the different gardens are, well, they're rather dense. And yeah. so, you know, it never hurts to ask for some help. So that's kind of what we've done. Absolutely. Yeah. So let's take a walk down the garden. And a quick note that we had trouble with Fabio's audio at one point. So there's a section in the middle where it seems like he doesn't say much. It wasn't that he checked out, but we had to do some creative editing. You've been for some time now doing a rereading Wolf series, which sounds like just a really great idea <laughs> for, for and a great title. Yeah. And uh, did you start with... Uh, the fifth head of Cerberus and, and then peace, or is that how have you been following this? You're currently in the middle of the book of the new sun. Yes. Uh, right now, uh, just uh, today, uh, we are recording this at uh, February the 18th. Uh, I just delivered uh, as a pending review in the Tor.com site. Uh, the last part, the third part of the Citadel of the Alterk. Uh, every every novel I've been uh, splitting into three parts. Uh, not uh, it's it's it, this part wasn't planned, but it just happened because uh, even though the novels aren't big, they are two two hundred and twenty pages each, approximately. But yeah. they are so filled with information. They're so mm -hmm. full of stuff that I suddenly I, I noticed, oh, I, I need to split this into three parts. Uh, I'll try uh, from now on to uh, do a kind of extreme makeover in this rereading. Because uh, what I've been doing so far, the story so far, um, I've been slowly walking uh, through... Basically, every work written by Gene Wolfe, with the exception of Operation Ares. <laughs> uh, he, he disavowed the story, so I, I thought uh, in good taste that I shouldn't even read it. I will do 
that. Maybe, maybe uh, when we are go going to the end, when we are next to finish the, the rereading, maybe I will read this book and offer as a bonus. Mm. But uh, I'm really not considering it. I'm st I've been studying uh, Gene Wolfe for, uh, for a time, for a while now, and I wanted to approach this rereading as a first-time reader, even though uh, the Book of the New Sun is my, is, this is my second reading right now. But mm -hmm. let me tell you, it will, it will not be the last. <laughs> I, have, I have so many things, so many questions. And I've been, all, all, uh, uh, I've been reading uh, the major scholars like John Clute, Michael Andretti Yussi, um, Mark Aramini. But uh, I wanted to give uh, uh, even if it was a small contribution to the canon of, of studies about Gene Wolfe, uh, I would like to do that. And that's what I've been doing so far. That's wonderful. So is this the end then of the Citadel of the Autark that you just submitted? Yes. The last yes, one? Exactly. The last one. And uh, I, I will tell you something. We are really doing a major uh, overhaul in the, in, the, in the series because uh, uh, I thought that would, it wouldn't be... Uh, it would extend it very, very much the the the, the series the, of of rereading books. So I will try to uh, instead of publishing uh, an article uh, every other week, I will do this uh, monthly from now on. Mm -hmm. But uh, I'm not sure if I'm going to review uh, one book per essay anymore. Uh, for for instance, the next installment of the the series will be uh, the coda to the new sun, the Earth of the new sun. Plus, I will do a short recap of the series of the four previous books, just to cover a few points I left uh, unsaid. For instance, yeah. uh, one of the major things about Gene Wolfe's stories is the relationship between time and memory. And one of the tools he uses uh, in order to talk about time and memory is to make his characters tell stories to each other. And I, I seldom wrote about this huh. in the rereading so far. Uh, you will notice that in the, the second installment of The Citadel of the Autark, I write extensively about this when they are um, in the Lazaret and... Uh, the, there is a, a female warrior, Foyla, and she proposes a, a challenge between her uh, um, the, the man who wants to win her hand. And so each one of them must tell a story, a narrative. M might be of fiction or non of non-fiction. And Severian uh, is the judge. Uh, and this is the only instance in the whole series that I chose to tell the story about those stories. But I'm really sorry about that because I'm putting everything ahead of it. I'm not talking about <laughs> what I came here for. Sorry. No, that's fine. That's fine. It's terrific. Tell us, when did you first read Wolf? In 1986 or 1987. I should I should consult my own point, uh, um, notes about this in the Tor.com website. Uh the question, the, the thing was, uh, I'm a I, I, I don't know if you are aware of that. I am a translator. I mm -hmm. I translated several science fiction and fantasy books uh, from English to Portuguese to Brazilian Portuguese, but 
Alas, I never translated Gene Wolfe, and I don't think I ever will, because the, the Book of the New Sun right now is being translated by another translator. <laughs> I don't know who, but for a major uh, uh, publishing house in Brazil. Mm. And probably the first novel will um, be published uh, by the end of 2020 or early 2021. But uh, when I was studying to be a translator, I did a, a, a college course, a kind of specialized in course in translator in, in, in Brazil. And uh, my, my, my teacher uh, presented me, introduced me to another, uh, another friend, another student of his, that, oh, you're gonna love Pedro because Pedro is also a major fan of science fiction and fantasy. And Pedro had many Gene Wolfe books. And uh, until then, I already had read Locus, uh, the, the, the magazine about science fiction mm -hmm. publishing. And uh, I, I, I've heard, I had heard of Gene Wolfe, but I never read him before. So Pedro, oh, okay, do you want to, do you want to read something? Uh, ah, maybe you should start by the Book of the New Sun. And then he threw me the books. <laughs> uh, oh, okay, I, I'm, I, I don't shy away, shy away from a challenge. I, I love reading series and trilogies and tetralogies, for that matter. Okay, give me the books. And I loved them. I loved them to bits. And uh, as a translator, as someone who was studying to be a translator then, I became fascin fascinated because many of the words Gene Wolfe used, they weren't quite familiar to me, but they, mm -hmm. are, they weren't also alien. Because uh, here's the thing, maybe for uh, Anglo-American, uh, for English native speakers, maybe some words may sound really alien to you. But uh, if, you are, if you speak a Latin language, Mm -hmm. language that is derived from Latin, uh, you think, oh, okay, I've heard this before, even though I'm not quite familiar with this word, but it sounds okay. It sounds familiar to me. Uh, things like Destrier, for instance, or Chatelaine. Mm -hmm. And if, oh, okay, Chatelaine, uh, maybe it has to do with, with a castle, a chateau. Okay, and then it, um, it piqued my curiosity, and uh, I, I told myself, I must know more about this writer. And then uh, after the Book of the New Sun, I read uh, The Island of Dr. Death and other stories and other stories. And then uh, There Are Doors, Endangered Species, and I started to read uh, at least half of them. And uh, I found in this rereading the perfect opportunity to read the rest of the books. And so I now I have with me uh, a few uh, in physical format, but most of them uh, in Kindle. Uh, and I'm, except for Operation Ares, but I think that will be remedied soon. And that's that. That's oh. fun. I've never known anyone who has told me how they deal with his vocabulary in translations, and especially those those particular words that are yeah, intentionally meant to be foreign to us seeming, um, like you mentioned, Destrier or even Fulligen, um, for uh -huh. the black, that, that all of those words are supposed to be, they're obviously real English words, but they're ones that 
no English speaker ever uses nowadays, just for the most part. So I'm always curious how translators deal with that. Like, do you go back in French and find a French word that would work like that or in Portuguese? Are you going back and finding older Portuguese words? Um, like, how do you have any idea how the, I mean, you said you don't know exactly who's doing it. So I guess you don't know yet <laughs> exactly how he's dealing with that, but how, how would you deal with that? Uh, if, you were, uh, if you were translating new son yes yes uh, i've been i've been thinking about that all the time every time i read uh, read the uh, gene wolf book I, I i think about this ah uh, uh, that's that's easy for instance you mentioned the word fuligen fuligen in portuguese we have this word it's called fuligen mm -hmm. it's just spelled a bit differently but there, there's no 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 big deal okay i, tr I translate one word vis-a-vis uh, uh, -vis, okay each other then fuligen is fuligen and that's that uh but uh some words like destrier, I I would leave them like that because of the estrangement, mm. uh, the sense of wonder. You say, oh, okay, but ah, okay, this is a kind of horse, and uh, uh, it, it, yeah, it will be a very interesting uh, thing to do. Uh, that uh, a thing by measure of comparison. I translated uh, Clockwork Orange to Brazilian Portuguese, uh -huh. and uh, it was it was a, a um, a hell of a book to translate because it took me <laughs> nine months to translate 120 pages. Wow! But uh, I had the full authorization of the of the editor. Say, okay, go ahead, take your time, and I indeed took my time. But uh, here's the thing: uh, there are three or uh, or, or or four words. Uh, uh, mostly, I I translated to to uh, uh, approximate version of what I what I thought. Anthony Burgess wanted to say, but that's that's a uh, that's a, an there's an example I always like to talk about when I'm doing a, a lecture on on Burgess, is that uh, halfway through the, the novel, uh, Alex uh, is lying in his bed and listening to Ludwig van, and he tell, oh my brethren, uh, this uh, marvelous sounds by Ludwig von, they are extremely wonderful and such and such. And suddenly he thought, oh, this is a uh, uh, heaven and uh, um, heaven metal. <laughs> and yeah. he wrote yeah. that in 1962, 12 yeah. years before uh, a critic on Rolling Stone called the sound of Led Zeppelin heavy metal. <laughs> so in this particular uh, case, uh, my translation is the is the second translation to Brazilian Portuguese. The first translation was in 1974, the, the year the, the the term heavy metal uh, was coined. So the translator translated the expression heaven metal into something we call metal celestial, celestial metal. Okay, but not this time. This time I say, okay, I must leave at that. Leave it at that. Okay, it will be heaven, heaven metal. It is. Uh, because people can appreciate, oh, okay, uh, he didn't translate that because uh, he shouldn't translate that. Mm -hmm. And uh, here is the is a, a most interesting thing because sometimes we must try hard not to translate uh, a few words just to enhance the the cognitive estrangement. That's fascinating. It makes me really want to go and and see different translations now and pick up the different words and see what choices people made. Oh, me too. <laughs> just new sun. Yeah. So, well, now I'm fascinated. And there really, there hasn't been a Portuguese version. 
No, there's a Portuguese version, but uh, here's the thing. Even though uh, I've been to Portugal a few times and received lots of friends, we speak the same language. But uh, since we are, uh, there's a notion between us and 500 years of colonization. Oh, yeah. Sure. And uh, several expressions, several uh, words, uh, we speak differently. And uh, at, until 20 years ago, more or less 20 years ago we some 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 expressions were were very hard really hard for us to understand but nowadays because of the telenovelas from brazil people mm -hmm. in portugal are starting to speak like like brazilian people <laughs> and so uh things are getting easier for us to communicate but not on translation on translation they they do these things very seriously and yeah. so uh sometimes uh sometimes some texts translated to uh, continental Portuguese are really hard for us to understand. I remember I once I tried to read a story of Gene Wolfe in continental Portuguese, but it wasn't the Book of the New Sun. I can't remember what story it was, but I couldn't understand half of it. <laughs> it was really, it, it, I had uh, strange mental right because I couldn't understand it. But yeah. I'm, uh, uh, several friends of mine uh, assured me the translation was really, really good for Portuguese standards, and I will go with them. Yeah, it's so interesting because the idea of translating the, the Book of the New Sun, because Wolf is is deliberately trying to create the sense of a translated document. Mm -hmm. in what he's writing exactly exactly yeah, yes every every almost every end of the novel there's an appendix when he speaks uh, mm -hmm. at length of this and it's very interesting there's a kind of of uh, found footage or found book found uh, uh, manuscript uh, <laughs> from the memories from the future i don't know there he's trying to translate it but uh, uh, it's very interesting because it it gives us at least a glimpse of his uh, writing process Uh, right, right. He, he guides the, the, the reader gently uh, by the hand. But the thing is, uh, since he uh, puts himself in the role of the translator, he's also a non-reliable narrator. So, mm -hmm. so everyone, every single character in the Book of the New Sun is non-reliable. And uh, that's that what's make it more interesting because sometimes I'm not sure if I must uh, agree with uh, his uh, own um, interpretation of facts and uh, or even words. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's wonderful. Well, I hope everyone will, if they haven't been following along on the tour.com read along by you, which I honestly, I bet most of the people who've been listening to this probably have <laughs> at least in one way or another. <laughs> I hope um, so. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> then, then please do, because there's some really good stuff and, and some insights. And I'm looking forward to when you do the next ones too. So I know New Sun pretty well, but I'm always curious to see what other people have, have said about him. So yeah, really looking forward to that. Chapter 19, The Botanic Gardens. All right. So to recap, it's still two weeks since the Feast of Holy Catherine. 
Severian left the tower yesterday. He slept with a giant. He's had breakfast with Baldanders and Talos. Talos has recruited a skinny waitress to his play. Severian is supposed to meet with them at sundown to take part in their play, but he's not going to do that. He went looking for a cheap mantle to cover his torturer's gear because it's so disconcerting to people to see it. He sees a girl outside a rag shop and whammo, he is so turned on. She's wearing a peacock print outfit with a tear in the side, vaguely Asian features. This is Asia. She's not at all thrown by his outfit, and when she sends him into the shop to find a mantle, neither is her brother, who is wearing a mask and seems to be wearing a mask under his mask. Ostensibly, they both think he's an armager in a costume, but Without conferring with his sister, Agilus knows that they both plan to entice Severian into a duel, kill him, take his sword. And soon she does show up, disguised as a cavalry officer, challenges him to leave. Then Agia shows up again, offers to take him to get the flower that he's going to need to fight this duel with and teach him how. But no sooner have they hired a cab than Agia challenges a stranger to a race. This results in the cab driver plowing into the cathedral tent of the Pelerines destroying the altar and the Pelerines' sacred relic, the Claw of the Conciliator, goes missing, which uh, actually is in uh, Severian's keeping because Agia has put it there. Also, the cab driver is nowhere to be seen. Uh, since we've all read this before, we know, of course, as I said, that the Claw is in Severian's purse, his precious saber tash, and now we're all caught up on the events this morning and the last five chapters or so. Okay, so Severian and Agia come out of the Pelerine's dark tent into the full day. Severian says, the sunlight was blinding. It seemed as if we had stepped from twilight into full day. But remember that in this world, the sun is never so bright that the stars can't be seen in the sky. Right. And one thing I like about that first sentence, I guess it's it's one sentence with one sentence with a with <laughs> semicolon there. But it, I just like if you're thinking sort of imagery and symbolism, the sunlight was blinding and we stepped from twilight into full day. Well, he's also stepping out for the first time holding the claw. And even though mm -hmm. he doesn't know it, and so for the chapter that then opened with him basically talking about blinding sunlight and going from a dark thing to a full day. In some ways, that's literally true with the larger story, because now that he's got the claw on him, mm -hmm. he's one step closer to that. Yes, exactly. And may maybe it's a kind of baptism, because now he is the new son incarnated, mm -hmm. but he doesn't know it yet. But th yeah. that, that's awesome, because there's this transition. And we'll see that, I'll jump in right now, uh, in the Citadel of the Autark, when he goes to the house of Ash, the last man in the house, in the, the last house in the cliff. And mm -hmm. uh, he finds that uh, as such as happened uh, before the chapter 19 in the atrium of time, because uh, every now and then he steps into some place that twists the uh, space-time continuum. Mm -hmm. And uh, here's the here's maybe it's the same thing, uh, but uh, in a minor key, because he is the one who's changing the space-time continuum and being changed at the same time. And uh, that's what I like to say. I try to say this every now and then and during the, the reading because I'm a, a lapsed Catholic. 
I'm mm-hmm. I'm a Buddhist, but I'm still I still uh, have uh, fond feelings for for the the, the Catholic um, mythology, so to speak. So yeah. uh, I I can relate in a few points with Gene Wolf or with Severian um, because of this because he is a kind of Christy. Christian or Christic figure mm-hmm. uh, without being the Christ. But it's yeah. a kind of resurrection renovation. Uh, by the way, the last chapter in the Book of the New Song is resurrection. So uh, he's he's already starting the resurrection right now in this chapter. Yeah. I like what you mentioning how he so many times walks in the, the time traveling and and sort of going through different dimensions happens through walking places because the way the last chapter ends is they say hey is that a terror in the wall over there and there are times later on where when he talks about different directions he'll mention that space is torn in certain ways or, or mm-hmm. doing certain things so there's actually there's actually something even literal about that in the way that they walk through a terror in the wall Yes, it's exactly. Door. Yeah. It's it's kind of it's kind if it's it's like uh, uh, the book of, as the as if the book of the new sun were kind of a portal fantasy by itself. He likes. Have you noticed how Jin Wolf loves doors? There are doors. Maybe is the most explicit uh, example. <laughs> he always yeah, crossing yeah. crossing thresholds into mm-hmm. another times and space and dimensions. I I, I I and I can't I can't get tired of it when Jin Wolf is writing. Yeah. And he even points out in Shadow of the Torture, begins at a gate and ends at a gate. Exactly. Has that thing. Yeah, definitely. All right, good. One right. sentence. <laughs> okay, <laughs> let's move to the second sentence now. <laughs> the uh, the tent was pitched on a champion, which is a flat open field. The houses surrounding it are semi-fortified, which suggests that this field was originally for mustering and drilling troops. We know there was a time when the Asians had pushed as far south as the Citadel. Perhaps even that's why the Citadel was built. Anyway, the belfries of the Pellerines Cathedral, although taller than the parapets of the surrounding structure, is of course insubstantial. Bordering the field, or perhaps encircling it, is a wide paved street. Agia looks around and chose a direction to the Adamenian steps. So Lexicon Earth has struggled to explain this name, I think. And frankly, I haven't done any better. It references a, a Saint Ad, Adam Nan, and I guess the steps are supposed to be named after him, but that's not really great. It's not Adamnian. I don't know. If it were named after Adam Nan, I'd kind of expect there to be some analogous steps in Rome, Constantinople, or Venice that are named after a Caesar or something. There's nothing revealing there. Anybody else got a reason for why they're named this way? No, uh, uh, to be to be honest, I I, I never uh, give uh, gave that a second thought. I just assumed that uh, there's reference to Adam to 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 the first man. Oh, I, I'm I'm not sure, but uh, maybe it's it's just a just a thought of, off the top of my head. Yeah, no, I was that's what I was wondering too because I was trying to think of something with the saint, and there wasn't really a whole lot there. But but anything I could come up with was sort of super speculative and just like about how well maybe the botanic gardens are opening up, up to new beginnings or something but it didn't it didn't really work so i'm not sure that's one thing that if someone else has a better idea i would love to know mm-hmm. well maybe they're named after a woman adamnia maybe it's a twin name 
I don't oh. know because there are we're going to see that there's that there are some statues to people to whom this area is named after uh, mm. the eponyms. So maybe there's more than one. I don't know. Uh, Badagia takes Severian's arm as she says her leg is limpy. Severian asks again who the Pellerines are, and Asia sidelong glances at him. You must forgive me, but I don't find it easy to talk of professional virgins to a man who has just seen me naked, though under other circumstances it might be different. So, you know, she's flirting with him. She claims to not know a great deal about the Pellerines, but as we'll find out, she really knows a lot about the whole Commonwealth, not just Nessus. She says that what she knows is what she's heard from her brother. Is Asia from out of town? She says they have some Pellerine habits in the shop, which suggests that their shop is where Pellerines get rid of their uniforms when they quit the trade. It's a popular choice for costume parties. They're all red. And in fact, Severian's going to eventually go to a costume party where someone's dressed as a Pellerine. Mm -hmm. Anyway, what she's been told by Agilis is that they're an order of conventionals. That, that means they are residents of convents. The red of their habit represents, quote, the descending light of the new sun, which the color of the new sun would be when setting rather than the color of the dying sun. She makes a pun here, uh, the descending light of the new sun, and they descend, the Pellerines, they descend on landowners <laughs> traveling around the country with their cathedral and Semming enough to set it up. Semming is the collective form of, uh, I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing it right. Sem, Semi, uh, S E M E. It's a heraldry term for flags, banners, shields, things with symbols on them. She says they claim to possess the most valuable relic in existence, the claw of the conciliator. Of course, Agia knows this isn't true. She knows Severian has the claw of the conciliator. She speculates that perhaps the red gowns also refer to the wounds that the claw makes. And that's a night idea we never get anywhere else, right? I mean, it's the whole idea of, of the claw being an animal's claw is sort of dismissed pretty quickly, right? I mean, I'm trying to think, are there any other places where they, they talk about it or, or does Severian ever really think of it as a wounding kind of thing, well, which is, of course, what I would immediately think about right. and always did first time I was reading it. Well, nobody, I mean, there does seem to be a lot of confusion that people just pass off about the name, that it's that's the name of a gem, even though it sounds like it ought to be something else. Yeah, I'm not sure. So one thing here, this is the first time we ever really, apart from seeing them, that we get someone actually talking about the Pellerines and, and what they do. Uh, you know, we can kind of guess that we, we guess that they're nuns of, of some kind, um, religious figures from the last chapter. But uh, the fact that that she talks about them as sort of showing up, setting up their tent, and basically the way she describes it, demanding that everyone start to come and Mm -hmm. that they take up their space and probably take offerings of food and, and other things that she's describing them in a very, very harsh light, even sort of, I mean, to me, sort of, exactly. Or even vampiric. I thought they had all the red <laughs> and like descending on things that that's kind of the way that she describes them. Um, and so in that context, the claw definitely does seem sort of menacing to, mm. to have it be something like that. Yes, that yes. Just, it just struck me this time that the way she describes it is it 
yeah, it's got all this sort of vampire and beastly imagery around it. Exactly. And in the in the end of the Sword of the Lictor, uh, if I'm not mistaken, uh, when the, uh, Baudenders throws the gem from the battlements of the castle and it breaks uh, on the on the stones down, and uh, when mm. Severian finds it, it finds it the, a kind of thing. Everyone says, "Oh, it's a flaw inside the gem." But it's not a flaw. It's a real claw. Maybe it's a, it's a very small claw. Mm-hmm. Maybe a claw belonging to a. It was a a, a claw from a from a, a kitten from a dog. I, I'm not sure, but uh, everyone, no, nobody seems to believe him after that. Uh, when he is again with the pelerins <laughs> yeah. at the Lazaret, talks with uh, with the 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 head of the of the the, 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 the Manea, she tells him, "Oh no, it's uh, it doesn't exist. You are you are mistaken. This is not the claw. The claw is a gem, and that's that." I won't hear about it anymore. Right. Yeah, okay. yeah. <laughs> and I do like that even here, right when it's it's come up, nobody agrees on what it actually is. And it turns out, of course, that, yeah, it itself doesn't have any real value. I mean, we know that eventually it's the thorn that, that you know, was bathed in just a little bit of Severian's blood. Mm-hmm. Um, but there was nothing sort of intrinsic to the thing itself that made it holy. It was holy because of it was it's just association with Severian. So yeah. even here, the first thing she says is, you know, it isn't a real claw. It's said to be a gem mm-hmm. that it's it's more it's legendary. It's it's symbolic status that makes it holy rather than anything of what it actually is, yeah. um, which is pretty appropriate. Well, Severian says, you know, I, I didn't know he had claws. But when you think about it, he's going to take this thorn. It's going to draw blood. It is, it's a claw. It's not his claw. It's the claw that's used against him. Uh, it does draw blood. And I wonder if there is an intentional reference here when Agia brings up the discussion of the wounds of the claw. She'll eventually disfigure Severian with a claw weapon. It's true. And and of course we have the, the crown of thorns. Like if we're looking for a specific thing, you do have Christ thorns. And then there's also, this is sort of making lots of vague connections here. But then when he sees the, when he sees Zadkiel or sees the hierogrammet in the small set of mirrors, right? He starts, he bleeds from his forehead. Isn't that mm, right? Yeah. So all of those resonances are caught up in this thing. Oh yeah. And it occurs to me that, you know, if you were going to talk about the true cross, it's, you would call it the cross of Christ, even though you know Christ doesn't ha- doesn't have a cross coming out of him. It's the cross used against him. You know, uh, Craig, we talked earlier about what sort of basic religion everyone has. Clearly, you know, even among people who acknowledge the concept of the conciliator and the new son, the claw and the pelerines are an esoteric religious concept. Not everyone mm-hmm. really understands them or knows them knows about them. Yeah. Yeah, it doesn't seem like a very organized hierarchical orthodoxy that's going on here. Right. And anyway, remember everything that Agia tells us is something that Agilus has told her, supposedly. So Agia says the claw is actually a gem, and she doesn't understand why it's called the claw, and she doesn't think the pelerines do either. Gosh, hasn't Severian heard of it, don't you think, at this point? But if it's really connected to the ancient conciliator, she uh, Agia says, you know, it would be a big deal. And then from this point on, Agia stops sounding like a rag shop girl. I'll just point out, yeah, or a predatory con man with an overcomplicated method of murder and robbery. She sounds like a philosopher scientist. Yeah, 
And Severian has actually mentioned the claw before. The, even he talked about earlier about seeing certain lights and thinking that they were blue mm-hmm. like the claw. I'm not, I'd have to go check, but I don't know if that was like narrator Severian. Yeah, I think so. Something back or whether he was saying that even then he recognized it as yeah. the claw. It's kind of unclear to me whether the claw is something that he knew about, but didn't know that the Pellerine supposedly had it or, yeah. or not. Yeah. yeah, I think that's narrator Severian. And it does feel like this is the first he's heard of it. Okay. So Agia, sounding like a philosopher-scientist, says, you know, if the claw had some direct connection to the conciliator, you can imagine its significance. Our knowledge of him now is purely historical, meaning we either confirm or deny that he was in contact with our race in the remote past. If the claw is what the Pellerines represented to be, then he once lived, though he may be dead now. Uh, this is ironic because we'll find out at the end of Citadel of the Autark that Severian is a conciliator. Um, also, she gives a sense that she assumes he may not necessarily be human or human in the way they think of him. Yeah. One one last thing just to mention before we move on to the rest of it, just about the claw. The, the, with the Pellerines, there's always red. There's always all this association to red, but the, the gem is blue, right? Right. Or at least the light that comes from it, I know, is blue. Yeah. Um, I'm trying to think if he actually says that the gem itself is blue or if the, the light that always glows from it is blue. But but either way, he never, so far as I know, never describes it as red. So um, any ideas of why, why they would be red rather than, I mean, I she says it's because of the sun the, that they're. Is there a reference in the, in Earth of the, of the new sun to why they began using red. I, no, it's, it is a bit of a mystery. It is, yeah, it's a little bit random. As Severian reclasps the fibula on his mantle, a fibula is basically just a type of clasp, he says that religious arguments like this get less significant the more you drill down on them, even accepting the claim that the conciliator, quote, walked among us eons ago and dead now. Why does it matter? other than to historians and fanatics. Severian says, quote, I value his legend as part of the sacred past. That is, as opposed to the actual past. Maybe we can talk about what that means. But Severian says, it seems to me that it is the legend that matters today and not the conciliator's dust. One thing I like about this line is that it does show, at least to me, and I'm sort of obsessed with with ways that this book tries to mix up or separate fiction, truth, and history and things like that. Um, but here, Severian seems much more fine with saying, yeah, it's just a legend. He's like, I'm not really, I don't really care so much about the the accuracy or the the literal truth of it. But he said that to me, it seems like the it's the legend that matters. Um, and then we can kind of learn from it as a moral story. But what happens in the long run, of course, is that we learn that it's the legend is also literally true for Severian and that those two things get mixed up much more. So it's no longer mythology in the sense of just a story that you can learn from, but actually it becomes constitutive and and something that makes, makes Severian what he ultimately becomes. But here it seems like the, the way he's describing it is a little bit more separated, almost a little bit more like a, I don't know. He talks about later um, how, you know, only fools are materialists. Um, and this sounds a little bit more like a materialist Severian saying, mm-hmm. yeah, whatever the real history was, the legend's there and that's good now. Right. Uh, whereas he comes to a very different perspective later on. Yeah. So Ajia 
says that the head of the Adamnian stair is coming up. See the statues of the eponyms. An eponym is someone something is named after. So that's why I wonder that whether these stairs are named after more than one person. Um, now, Agia continues to stimwind. She's assuming that the conciliator actually existed. He was, by definition, a master of power, which means the transcendence of reality and includes the negation of time. Isn't that correct? And Severian nods. So is this common uh, philosophical knowledge or, or technical knowledge? Yeah, it's, kind of, it's almost a funny kind of thing where someone would be like, I mean, just to sort of lay those kinds of ideas out <laughs> really right. is like, that's common knowledge, right? Um, it. That's why I always took this as a little less straightforward. And then for Severian, just to nod seems much <laughs> less like, okay. You know, like, well, maybe, yeah, maybe he's covering up. He's like, uh, yeah, sure. Of course. Sure, exactly. Sure, yeah. <laughs> Everybody knows that. It's also different. I mean, I don't think, you know, I think we're supposed to be guessing at this point that, you know, the conciliator is something like a Christ figure and to call it, I don't know very many people who would, the first thing they would call Jesus would be a master of power. Like that's just not the the phrase that I think you'd normally think that it's it would be much more something else, and the the other things like transcendence of reality and negation of time those you could think about eternal things, but to call him a master of power is not what I would necessarily. Yeah. Think. So I remember being confused by that that line when it first <laughs> came out. I was like, oh, maybe he's a superhero figure, and I was thinking the wrong kind of thing. But but yeah. So. That's why, you know, a lot of this early conversation between Severian and Asia, it just feels really natural and enjoyable if, as if Asia is just some girl, rag shop girl that Severian has met. And then you get conversations like this and you say, well, wait a minute, she doesn't talk like what I thought she was supposed to be and makes me, I'm sorry, I'm just paranoid about Asia. I've, I'm very dubious about Asia. Um, I have, you haven't heard this yet, but when Severian talks about going about going to get an Avern, I see these real clear allusions to the Eonid, where Enus goes to Lake Avernus and he g- goes there to counsel with his father. He has to go to the underworld to counsel with his father, and he encounters Dido, inconsolable. And so you have Enus, Severian as Enus, you have Owen as his father, you have Dorcas as Dido. There's only one person missing in all this, and that's the Kamean Sibyl that leads him to the underworld. And so, and I said, whoa, wait a minute. I have a, I have a working curiositas earthus, a working theory that Asia is actually working for the witches. For some reason, since I don't really understand the motivations of the witches, I don't know really why, but that's my belief. Yeah, we've sort of we've hashed around a few different ideas for what Asia really is in the background that that we'll, we can talk about other times. Yeah. So anyway, Asia continues. She says, then there is nothing to prevent him from a position, say, of 30,000 years ago coming into what we call the present. So 30,000 years ago, we, we have a number. We have an actual number of years since Typhon. So Asia says, well, dead or not, if he ever existed, he could be around the next bend of the street or the next turn of the week. So they start walking down the uneven steps of, quote, stone as white as salt. The descent of the steps varies according to terrain. It's really more of a finished path down to the river than some kind of formal stairway. Sometimes the stairs descend very gradually and sometimes as steep as a ladder. 
Along the way uh, are market stands, confectioners, sellers of apes, and the like. So, and the like, being that there is no <laughs> likeness between yeah. those two things. Uh, <laughs> and I like that that just stands in for one of those, another one of those big long lists of crazy different things mm-hmm. that are all, all right. bunched together. Which I'm sorry we didn't get another one. I want to know all the yeah. different kinds of sellers, <laughs> just like all the different kinds of buildings and everything else. Right. On either side of the stair or path are brutal busts. So what I imagine this means sculptures of faces in the brutalist tradition, like I don't know, like at late Roman times, you know how they mm-hmm. change from classical to these more um, bizarre and large-eyed sculptures. Over time. Are these would we think these are still the same statues that were the um oh shoot what's the word uh the the founders of things oh what was what was the word the just, e- eponyms there you go the eponyms eponyms are these the same guys I don't know I would think that they're different I think the statues of the eponyms at the beginning of the stairs that makes me think okay these are the people the stairs are named after and these other busts are people. Of, for various reasons, that have earned a place along these stairs. Gotcha. Yeah. In be. my opinion. Uh, Severian thinks, for whatever reason, it was pleasant to discuss mysteries with Agia while descending these steps. But he says, quote, all this because those women say they possess one of his glittering fingernails. See, it's the claw, so it's probably a shiny fingernail. <laughs> he says, I suppose it performs miraculous cures. And she says, uh, on occasion, so they claim, it also heals wounds, that is, injuries, raises the dead, draws new races of beings from the soil, purifies lust, and so on. All the things he's supposed to have done himself. In this book and in Earth of the New Sun, as conciliator, we'll see that Severian heal the sick, heal wounds, raise the dead. Raising new races from the soil, well, that sounds like a reference to the Greek hero Cadmus, who sowed dragon's teeth and grew the race of Thebes. Um, it's also the Greek man. I mean, it's also what, you know, what the, oh, sort of okay. the evolution of humanity. Is. I guess that's, that's true. That's Ultimately, that's true. That one, yeah. that, that's, that's how I always took that one. To me, the one that always stood out, though, is that purification of lust. <laughs> because that's, that's one I'm not sure Severian actually. I don't think it worked. No. <laughs> I mean, even all the way in Earth, he's still with with Gunny and Regundafora. He's still there's still some of that going on. And yeah, I I don't really know what to do with that as, in the list, honestly, because I and I don't know if that's sort of Asia saying something. But is lust a like this sort of taking us sort of from broader scale? But is lust really considered a, a sin in this book? I mean, mis, misplaced love and and sort of getting yourself into problems because of it maybe but it's hard to say yeah yeah that was one thing in the list of things that could be you know overcoming sins that it doesn't quite seem like wolf is really after i mean monogamy is never really even an issue (laughs) for any any character in in the book well it seems like it's it's it is an issue Uh, it seems to be a big deal if your wife cheats on you but the men it's true that's true yeah syriaca you're right So uh, Severian looks over at Asia and he says, okay, now you're laughing at me. And she says, no, no, only laughing at the sunshine. Mm. (laughs) So maybe he is laughing. He's Severian's the new son. So she says, you know what the sun is supposed to do to women's faces? And he says, tan them. 
Uh, incidentally, human biology has surely changed by this time if the dying sun can tan anyone. Thekla mentioned that Severian being burned by the sun, but mm-hmm. tanning is a reaction. You still get UV rays. <laughs> the visible <laughs> okay. light shifted, but you still got your. Oh, okay. That's good. Maybe so. Maybe maybe it's got even stronger UV rays. <laughs> I have no idea. Unless that's that's the wolf literal engineer scientist getting getting in there for just a second. But um, yeah, I don't know. Well, yeah. Well, maybe people have changed a lot, though. I mean, maybe the idea of dark or fair in this world is not what we think. You know, we'll get a little bit of a reference to this after Severian goes into the Manape Cave. That he says, why have these people changed and not me? And he says, well, you you have changed. So anyway, Asia wasn't remarking on the sun's ability to tan. She says the sun is supposed to make women's faces ugly. It dries the skin and creates wrinkles, but it also shows every defect. And then she has a little quote. She has a reference. She says, Urvasi loved Pururavas, you know, before she saw him in the bright light. So she makes another, I guess, well-known cultural reference in her world that is not well-known in our world. It's a Hindi story. Uh, Urvasi was a divine being, maybe the goddess of dawn. This is a story that is seen as an allegory of a romance between the sun and dawn. Urvasi agreed to live with Pururavas under three conditions. They're always one or three. They were that he keep two goats close by their bedroom, I don't know the significance of goats in relation to the sun. I admit my knowledge of Hindi mythology is not highly refined. Goats often pull the conveyances of gods in Hindi mythology. Anyway, the other is that she will only eat one lick of clarified butter a day. Okay. The most important ones is that she would never see him naked. This, by the way, is a condition my own wife made for me when we were married. So I get it. So Pururavas agrees, and they live in bliss for 59 years. Uruvasi tends to the goats as if they were her own children. The gods are jealous of Uruvasi and Pururavas, and they want Uruvasi to return to heaven. So now we're moving into slash fiction by a 13-year-old girl. Everyone's jealous, and they don't want them to be together. So in the night, the gods steal one of their goats, and Uruvasi hears the goat bleeding and yells, they've stolen my son. And Pururavas thinks, I should go and see about that goat, but I'm naked because it's in the middle of the night, so I'll just stay here. And then they steal the other goat. She says, my boy. Well, without those goats, the conditions are broken anyway. So he gets up and he runs outside, and the gods shine a glaring light on him, condition broken. Uruvasi has to leave Earth, and that's the story. Now, because that's my inclination, I'd like there to be some connection between Severian and Asia in this story. I'm pretty good at finding them, but frankly, I've got nothing. The point is that Asia says she feels the sun on her face and says to the sun, I don't care about you. I'm still too young to worry about you. Next year, I'll get a wide hat from our stock. And Severian says, Asia's face was far from perfect now in the clear sunshine but she had nothing to fear from it. My hunger fed at least as ravenously upon her imperfections. She possessed the hopeful, hopeless courage of the poor, which is perhaps the most appealing of all human qualities. I rejoiced in the flaws that made her more real to me. This whole scene, every word of the conversation feels like the beginning of a love story between Severian and a poor rag shop, manic pixie dream girl. Remember 
that her goal in this whole scene is to trick Severian into getting into a duel at sunset and holding the Avern flower in his ungloved hand so it will turn on him and kill him. As I've said before, if you don't believe that Asia is part of some larger pot, you have to believe that all these, I admit, very charming conversations between Asia and Severian is one big lie. Yeah. So again, pay attention to what Asia says. Pay attention to what she does and the way she's situated in the story. Anyway, yeah. you're saying? No, I was going to say the one thing that does stand out about this is that the sun is, this is one of the only times in the book where any character really talks about the sun as something damaging or that the fact that it's light shows too much. Mm-hmm. I mean, even the myth is, I mean, she talks about how it shows, it shows imperfections. And then in the myth, the sun is what, you know, shows someone naked. Mm-hmm. And so in this case, right here at this moment, that's the one time where we see the sun not shown as something that gives new life, but as something where light is destructive because it kills beauty and something that shows you things you otherwise don't want to see. Mm-hmm. So you do get those resonance and that's perfectly appropriate for Asia, who is sort of a, a deceptive character. Right. Um, and so you do get that. And that's the one thing that I think stood out to me is that the way that she tells that story is another example of how the sun can be, you know, and showing you the truth and sort of taking disguises away for her is a negative thing mm-hmm. and a dangerous thing. And that's, that's not copied by much else in the book. No. Well, let's get back to the meat cute. <laughs> uh, she squeezes Severian's hand. She says, anyway, I have to admit, I've never understood why people like the Pellerines always think ordinary people have to have their lust purified. In my experience, they control it well enough by themselves, and just about every day, too. What most of us need is to find someone we can embottle it with. So that's a pretty overt pass she's making. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Then from here on out, it seems like that's where the seduction really starts going. So only half joking, Severian says, then you care that I love you. On the subject of half-joking, I'll just say that the comedian and eventual Senator Al Franken had a word for half-joking. He called it kidding on the square, where you make a joke, haha, just a joke, but you really mean it. <laughs> so Asia says, every woman cares if she's loved, and the more men who love her, the better. But I don't choose to love you in return, if that's what you mean. It would be so easy today, going around the whole city with you like this. But then, if you're killed this evening, I'll feel badly for a, a fortnight. Two whole weeks. Again, if anything, she's encouraging Severian not to do the duel, just like Agilis seemed to be doing. They're not ruthless. It just feels weird to me. So Severian says, well, if you feel bad, think how I'm going to feel. And Agia says, you won't care. Being dead doesn't hurt. You should know that. (laughs) Severian says, I'm almost inclined to think this whole affair is some trick of you or your brother's you were outside when the Septentrion came. There you go, Severian. Put it together. Put it together. Did you tell him something to inflame him against me? Is he your lover? Oh, Severian. Ajia laughs, her teeth flashing in the sun. She says, look at me. Do you think I look like I have an officer of the household troops for my boyfriend? He says, I do have a brocade gown, but I'm naked under it. I'm wearing no shoes. I'm not wearing rings or earrings. Do I have gold circlets on my arms? Is there a silver lamia twined about my neck? Aha. Okay. Remember that Thecla wore a bracelet with a kraken? 
And remember that this is a signal I took, and I think it's clear at this point, that it was a signal that Thecla was in league with Vodalus. In fact, the Autarch will accuse Thecla of being loyal to Vodalus all the way to death, a true Mm -hmm. believer. That the reason that Vodalus had Severian partake in the ceremony was to mentally bind him closer to him. Which is interesting because he seems, if anything, less interested in Vodalus's cause after that moment. By the way, just one tiny little note on that: there is a line in Earth where Severian's talking about loyalty and other things, and he talk he says how Thecla was was disloyal to her Artark. Um, the just right. one line where it's one of those things where he kind of just flat out confirms a couple other things. I just don't think we mentioned that before, but yeah. yeah. But my point here is that Alamia is not a kind of jewelry. It's not another word for a necklace. A lamia is a serpent with a woman's head. Like, oh, you know, the Kumean witch that Severian meets at the end of Cloth Conciliator. Lamia have a lot of various meanings in Greco-Roman literature. But in Apollos's uh, Metamorphosis, the, also called the Golden Ass, the witches that the protagonist meets in Thessaly are called lamiae. So again, I will contend that this is another hint that Aja is in league with the witches. Common necklaces for her are necklaces in the form of lamias. So Aja says that the only guy who wants her is an old sailor, ugly and poor, who's pressuring her to move in with him. By the way, people assume that the reason Aja suddenly has money to buy mercenaries to ambush Severian at the man cave is because she's cut a deal with Hathor. But here she says that Hathor is poor. I know that Aja being in league with the witches supposedly undercuts my other theory that she is Hathor's sex doll. But does it? What if Hathor is working with for the witches? Which again, Fabio, um, do you have any bead on what the witches do for the Commonwealth that they have an officer in the government? No, no. What's their role? No, uh, the, the the thing is, uh, sometimes I'm I'm reading uh, an, an, another another layer of meaning in the in the new sun. All this this thing about Asia is reminds me of the the great game in the British Empire mm. in the 19th century because uh, there is some point and everyone is working for everyone else and no yeah. one really knows what the other is doing and uh, <laughs> as for the witches uh i i i do believe uh they are not i, I don't know i i, I haven't I, I didn't elaborate it uh much mm-hmm. but i believe they really are from um other um not other dimension, but uh, for another age, for another time, mm. from the future. Not, but not the same future as the Green Man. Not the same future as Ash, but another future. And they are trying to steer things hmm. their, their way. But, but again, I don't know what they are steering right. things to. Uh, I don't know what their utmost purpose. Yeah, I think at the end of Claw of the Conciliator, Severian asks, what, so are you guys like the Cacogens? He says, no, but we have we have an agreement. <laughs> we mm-hmm. we pay our debts. And Yeah. And when the command, like the the spell or whatever, requires, like they say, someone who actually remembers that time. And and she says, if you look up in the sky, there's a star that that has a planet, which I, I used to wonder it. Now I think she means Severian, but um, and and the star that might be out there, but um, 
But <laughs> where am I going with this? Oh, but the other, all the witches seem like when she, when the Cumaean gives that explanation, the other witch who's with her just kind of seems like, yep. Uh, she's like, yeah, that's kind of, that's just how it works. And so she seems to have this different knowledge of the technology that's right. so far that it's like magic. Um, but she's totally fine with things. There's a very different understanding of the world that that wouldn't, right. that wouldn't surprise me at all. So yeah. uh, listing the evidences of her poverty, she includes the rag shop. She says, other than that, well, Ajalis and I own our shop. It was bequeathed to us by our mother. Again, mother could be the Kameyan, right? She goes on, the rag shop is free of debt only because we can find no one who's fool enough to lend anything on it. Sometimes we rip up something from our stock and sell it to the paper makers so we can buy a bowl of lentils to divide between us. Severian says, well, you know, at least she'll eat well tonight because he overpaid for this mantle he's wearing. She pretends to be shocked. What? You won't buy me supper this evening <laughs> after I've spent the day counseling you and guiding you? And for the record, she hasn't really given him any useful advice yet and has not been the most stellar guide except as a tour of wreckage and sacrilege. But she says she's really sorry about the Pellerine Temple thing. I didn't want to tire your legs. You'll need them when you fight. Yeah, sure. Then those others came up and I thought I saw a chance to make you some money. Uh, everyone agrees he's not going to need money after today. Her look had left my face and come to rest on one of the brutal busts that flanked the stairs. I asked, is that really all there was to it? So Ajia doesn't explain why, but she says she wanted Raucho and his date, quote, unquote, to think he was an armager. Armagers are always going to costume parties. And so she claims they're always going around in costume. She wanted them to go on thinking that Severian might be an armager. They're always going to feats and tournaments. A feat is a festival. She says Severian has the face of an armager. And you see, if you were, then I was someone that somebody like that, an armager and probably the bastard of an exultant, might care for. Remember, it's been hinted that Severian looks kind of like an exultant. <laughs> she says she had no way of knowing what would happen. Uh-huh. Severian buys it all. She says, if you understand, then kiss me. Severian is stunned, and you know, I'm a little befuddled myself. She says she really wants him to kiss her, and she offers more after supper if they can find a private spot, but it won't be good for his fight. Dames, weaken the legs. She throws her arms around his neck and kisses him on her tippy toes, and he likes it. At the bottom of the stairs, there are pylons to either side. Pylons are an architectural feature of the Egyptian temples. They're basically big stone billboards that taper up to the top. They were painted and held banners. Also at the bottom of the stairs is the Guile River, and to the left of the pylons is an island in the middle of the river and a dome of glass. That's the Botanic Gardens. Severian has never seen a building made of glass, and he'd never imagined one could be built. I mean, he grew up in a tower with five to ten feet thick walls. Uh, have you guys ever been to Moody Gardens in Galveston, Texas? I have, actually. No, I haven't. <laughs> <laughs> well, there are these big glass pyramids with botanic gardens in each one based on oh. different environments. Yeah, sound familiar? Well, I thought that Wolf might have been inspired by them, but it would not be possible unless he had a time machine. 
which is not beyond the realm of possibility. But Moody Gardens were only being planned as the Citadel of the Autark was coming out. So, I've been, I, I saw a, a glass pyramid on the Louvre, but it was it was also built after the whole the new Sun <laughs> Saga. So anyway, so Severian can cut an avern at the Botanic Gardens. He can demand it as his right. I can't imagine how a tradition like that got officially recognized. Severian can see the citadel from the stairs, and he remembers that when he'd go swimming, he could see sometimes a, a white line in the horizon that he now knows were these stairs. Severian is thrown off by the fact that the glass dome structure has no towers or battlements. Quote, only the faceted thalus climbing until it lost itself in the sky and its momentary brilliancies were confounded with the faint stars. You know, I've always imagined the Botanic Gardens as some kind of fully domed structure, a, a half dome or even a geodesic dome. But now I see that it's a Greek thallus, which is like a round, tall structure with arches all around and a dome on top. As far as Severian is concerned, it's incredibly tall and enormous. Now, is that right? Because he does talk about the panels and the facets. Yeah, well, the whole thing is obviously got, it's all made of glass, but it's in the shape of, how can I, it's like a cylinder with a dome on top that kind of, kind of a descending cylinder. Hmm. Well, yes. And if you disagree, you can correct me later. <laughs> Severian asks Asia if they have time to see the gardens inside. And then before she can answer, he says, never mind, we'll see them whether we have time or not. He's decided he's not going to get distressed about arriving late to his own death. He's beginning to think a mortal combat with flowers sounds a little silly anyway. Agia says she comes here a lot. It's maintained by the Autark, and it's a lot of fun if you're not too squeamish. It's not clear to me what the utility is to the Autark to maintain it, or why Father Ineri built it. It's all a mystery to me, but maybe they're just nice guys. Now they've arrived and they walk up the steps made of paley green glass. Severian assumes that it's a kind of greenhouse for the cultivation of fruits and stuff year round. But Agia laughs at that and explains that you walk through this arch, again, remember it has arches all around, this arch in front of them down a corridor on either side are big chambers, rooms. Each one is a different bioscape. Agia implies that using a clever method of perspective in which the corridor is actually shorter than the building, the rooms appear to get wider as you walk into them. This is obviously untrue once we get into those rooms. Anyway, she says, some people find it disconcerting. Inside the thallus, sound is dampened. Severian writes that they stepped into such silence as may have been in the morning of the world before people. The air is fragrant, all those flowers, humid, and warmer than it was outside. Typical greenhouse. The floor of the corridor is tessellated, that is, tiled in some way. The walls to either side are glass, but glass too thick to clearly see through. But he can make out leaves and flowers and big trees on one door, through the glass. On one door, he sees a sign. It says, the Garden of Sleep. There's a museum employee there that seems to recognize that this is Severian's first time. He gets up from his chair and says, you may enter whichever you like and as many as you like, but Agia says they won't have time for more than a couple. The guide recommends the Garden of Pantomime, 
He's wearing a robe that reminds Severian of something he can't quite put his finger on. Boy, incorruptible memory is such an advantage. <laughs> it's a curator's habit that he's it's a curator's habit. So he's seen Rudison and Alton and Kibbing in these. When the curator asks if he's encountered members of the, his guild before, Severian says, twice, I believe. If we could go back to um, the Garden of Pantomime, yes. because that's obviously all we ever know of the, is the name. But the one thing that struck me was that it's a, it, we were talking, oh shoot, <laughs> I forget exactly when we were talking about it, but about um, all the different points of drama. Mm-hmm. Oh, with with the at the end of Baldander's uh, dream about the different kinds of theater that show up, and just right. this is another one of the points where we get a little. I mean, a pantomime was, of course, kind of drama and acting, and um, this time without words, but it's still just one more mention of that. Just if you're adding up the theater images, that's a good point. What the heck is going on in that garden? That is, mm-hmm. yeah, I don't know. It's and you know to think of a garden of pantomime. I mean, all the others. There's the titles have something to do with the actual vegetation or something like that that's in there. I wonder if we but, had gone into that garden, if we would have gotten some images of what the heck is going on in the history of Earth that we, that got us this point. And I have no idea. That's one where I have no no clue if Wolf actually had a plan for what that was or if it was just a really cool, mysterious name. Yeah. <laughs> well, like the Garden of Delectation. <laughs> that one I can imagine. Oh, yeah. but, um... <laughs> the curator says, uh, there are only a few of us, but our charge is the most important that society boasts, the preservation of all that is gone. The curators are kind of the opposite of the witches. The witches probably received as many girls as the torturers got boys, but that sometimes feels like more than their job requires. The curators have very few members in their guild, and that hardly seems enough. Gibby and Alton running the whole library in the Citadel. The curator recommends the Garden of Antiquities for a first visit. It has hundreds and hundreds of extinct plants, including some that have not been seen for tens of millions of years. Asia, full of snark, says, sure. And that purple creeper you're so proud of? I saw one growing wild on a hillside on the cobbler's common. The curator admits that they know about it. A roof pane broke and some spores escape. It'll do well now since since all its predators are dead. And so are the diseases that the leaves cured. So the one thing that's weird about that is how she recognizes one plant. (laughs) And I don't know if it's just a particularly unique plant, but it's just another strange thing about Asia, how she knows she's got this, you know, somewhat creative or detailed philosophical and Mm -hmm. religious knowledge. Um, And then also she seems to be really good at recognizing specific plants, even though she's not an herbalist. She's right costume girl. Right? Well, so. in this case, she does say that they are particularly proud of it. She says that she's been there uh, multiple times. I guess that's true. So it could yeah. be that, you know, every time she would come there she and go into the Garden of Antiquities, they would brag about this flower. And it's just, oh, there's that flower. <laughs> and I would like <laughs> to offer another crackpot theory. Uh, please bring please, it up. Please. Whenever someone does this, we always play a special music <laughs> for our uh, curiosity. Curiositas Urthus. Uh, let me let me say, I I'm just thinking right now of something that might uh, this this pieces uh, might fit into. Uh, 
for instance, uh, Asia not it's it's part of a of, of, of a kind of great game, but uh, that extends in space and time, and maybe just maybe they are all all of them, including the curators, um, because uh, Father Inuri built this with the altar, right? Mm -hmm. And Father right. Inuri, uh, I don't, we don't know who he, he really is and where he came from. Sometimes I think he came from the past, from from a, 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 a from a more technologically inclined past, and he knows much more about technology than uh, even the witches does. And that mm. was a kind of eminence grise in the Alterc uh, uh, rule, for instance. But uh, here's the thing: maybe I'm getting a bit ahead of myself because the Guardian of Sleep. But uh, sometimes I think that every biosphere there is a portal to another dimension to another time to another age and maybe some of the characters in this whole pantomime that is the new sun cycle uh -huh. maybe most of them like hetor we know he is uh and uh, also uh the other friend of his the cyborg i i, I mm -hmm. just forgot his name jonas jonas yeah yes jonas uh who becomes miles later but uh they are all displaced they are all misplaced in time maybe including asia mm -hmm. without yeah. her knowledge maybe she doesn't know that but she's working for the witches so maybe She's also from another time or another dimension, another wrinkle in time. Just let's say yeah. it. And Jin Wolf really is not that keen into telling us explicitly at what time they they are, what age of humanity they are. I don't know. That, that as I said, just a crackpot theory. No, it's not actually very crackpot because we know that the sailors in, from Earth and New Sun, they yes. get on the ship from all times, they mingle, and then they exit at who knows when. Mm -hmm. We have events like this. We have these mirrors so from people coming from other universes, other times. Yes, that, that, uh, we, we will see this in the Earth of the New Sun, right? And the ship, the, the right. everlasting the Earth, ship. So, so the, the, the future and the past are constantly mingling. Mm -hmm. And it's often asked, you know, how how can it be so far in the future and have so many recognizable things just around every corner? Well, you have people coming from the past. You have people coming from the future. They're all mixed up in this at this time, and you know, it becomes a lot. Often, the present in this distant future begins to look a lot like the past uh -huh. because you've brought you've brought in other species and and re released them into the wild. Exactly. Yeah. Um, a rumbling makes a Severian turn, and there's two workmen wheeling a, a like a, a, I guess a wheelbarrow, a cart through the doorways, and he asks what they're doing. The sand garden is under construction for some reason. It's being rebuilt. It's a desert ecosystem, cactuses and yucca, that kind of thing. Are the cactuses and yucca plants that Severian and a rag shop girl are are they likely these things that they're likely to be familiar with? I don't know. Maybe Severian would like to see the work though. Anyway, maybe it's going to be a different ecosystem. In the Garden of Sand, they step into what seems to be an unlimited space dotted with boulders. The wall behind them is a stone cliff, so he can't see the glass wall supposedly. 
Just beside the doorway is a big plant with a half bush, half vine with cruel curved thorns. There's no other vegetation, but you can see the track of a cart going off into the rocks ahead. Aja wants to get out of there and go to the Garden of Delectation instead. Severian says that he can see the door behind them, but he feels like he can't leave. And Aja gives him a look and says that that's an effect that the gardens have on some people, but it usually doesn't happen so fast. So why is Severian different here? She urges Severian to leave, but her voice fades away in the sound of surf pounding on the edge of the world. And finally, she drags him out. We're really short of time now. Let's go to the Garden of Delectation. Then we'll cut your avern and go. And he says, we have lots of time. It's only mid-morning. But Aja says, no, it's past noon. They were in the sand garden for over an hour, approaching two hours, because she says over a watch. Severian accuses her of lying. He says, uh, for an instant, I saw a flash of anger in her face. And then it was spread over with an unction of philosophical irony, the secretion of her injured self-esteem. I was far stronger than she, and poor though I was, richer. She told herself now, I could almost hear her voice whispering in her own ear, that by accepting such insults, she mastered me. Okay, so we need to go back first to the actual sand garden and why Severian has that feeling mm-hmm. and what it is. And I think we know, of course, in Citadel that when he has that experience and of on the beach where Malrubius and Triskel you know, whisk him away in the deus ex machina and whisk him off out of his problems where they, they land is next to ocean. Mm-hmm. And there, of course, he sees the bush that I'm, I'm always assuming is a rose bush, but now I'm, I'm wondering in Citadel, does, is it a rose bush or is it just another bush? I'm not sure. I, I can't think, I, I can't remember rose bushes there. Yeah. Um, but it's the, it's the same kind of thing that he has here. And so here also, they mention hearing almost somewhere, you know, the sound of the beach. Right. And, um, and then also when he talks about th- that, he felt as if another woman was there by that time, he's got Thecla inside of him. Right. And I always think of that as that he's, what he's doing is, is he's connecting somehow to his future. That is, is part of the reason why people may get lost in these places is because if they are each time and space traveling things, then it's possible that they could be connected to possibly another version of themselves. That's certainly, I think what's happening with Severian is that he is overlapping a little bit and, and connecting with that moment where he's going to have that, you know, incredibly, that's his real religious experience where he talks about taking off his shoes because he didn't want to walk shod on holy ground. And, Mm -hmm. um, and so that's where he kind of has his real realization of, of what he was caught up in. And so here what he's getting is that little presentiment of his future, as he says. All the pieces are there with the exception of he's not at a beach. He's in the middle of a desert. Now, maybe, maybe what this is saying is that at some time in the past, this the beach he's standing on was actually a desert. But mm-hmm. I don't know. Maybe. I mean, at least that would make some sense uh, because all the other pieces are there. No, uh, I remember because I just wrote the, about a, a, a similar scene in the end of the Citadel of the Altar when uh, the ship that uh, with the Hyerdos, uh, Maskinas, Malrubius, and Triskele uh, t- uh, took him from the, the battleground and 
carried him in a flyer in, in a ship mm -hmm. uh, until the, the 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 edge of an ocean where he seems he hears surf pounding off the edge in the edge of the world. Right. Maybe he's mm -hmm. seen what is going to happen three books later. I don't know. Yeah. yeah. Well, yeah, ex exactly. But why is it? Why is he get that feeling? In the garden of sand, it's all a desert. Yeah, and I wondered, I tried to wonder, is this something where, like, if he kept walking, eventually he'd, you know, come around to mm -hmm. what seemed like a big dune, and all <laughs> of a sudden there would be, you know. Um, <laughs> it's hard to say, because, um, and they mention how this is, it's in construction, right? Like, it's in, in repair, and things are being moved around, and it's not complete. So, possibly, those are all more mechanical reasons. I feel like there should be some more... I don't know something else about about what it is, unless this is just one of those moments where it's so similar to something he's going to experience later mm -hmm. that, like all the other really powerful sort of symbolic moments that he experiences, it's that similarity that that catches him right. and sort of makes him you know hear something from his future. Mm -hmm. But the fact then that Severian wants to stay and he totally loses track of time. I mean, one thing you got to remember too is this is one of the the places where Severian literally loses his memory. He says that, you know, there's a time later where he says he forgot something. In Citadel there's the moment where he's like I finally forgot. I now know what it feels like. But here he forgets the time that's passed because he thinks it's only been um you know, a few minutes, but she's like, you were in there for an hour or hours. And he doesn't recognize that time. Right. And he forgets the things that she says that they did. So assuming she's not lying um, and that the time actually has passed like that. Well, yeah, he's totally forgotten this moment. And I think that may be just as significant as sort of the fact that he remembers his future, that something else is going on that's actually causing Severian to completely forget a whole chunk of time here. And it could be that that connection to another version of himself or a future version of himself that messes things up. It's like a small version of the explosion that happens when he meets Apu Punchao, maybe. Uh, but that, to me, is more is all caught up in yeah, the weirdness right. of that moment. Mm -hmm. I agree. So, uh, yeah, I, I guess we can agree that Ajia's um, proffered explanation that it's like this because father Aniri wants to turn people into set dressings. I, that's not true, right? <laughs> I don't think so. Um, that's, that's her idea, uh, but that doesn't make sense to me. I mean, because what's on this, what's going on here wouldn't be part of his manipulation. This would be something, I mean, really personal and meaningful for Severian, the individual person, right? It's not right. like, like Inere could say, okay, I'm going to make one garden so that if this one dude walks in, it's going <laughs> to connect him to his, his big right. religious awakening later on. Yeah. I mean, that would be really strange. So something else is going on, but at least maybe there's enough sort of weird timey wiminess um, that it allows Severian a glimpse into and just one other thing, he just says where he's like, I, I was to meet someone. I felt like that I belonged there and that I was supposed to meet someone. Right. Um, and I didn't know if that's Mal Rubius. Is that himself? Is that, um, you know, all the other autarchs that he's supposed to get in touch oh, with? Oh, that's a good point. Well, he's, well, I mean, it could be Mal Rubius, I guess. Who's he going to, yeah, it's got to be Mal Rubius. I felt I belonged there, that I was to meet someone, and that a certain woman was there nearby but concealed from sight. The woman, of course, Thecla. Who he's is always concealed. Yes. Yeah, this that depends on when you suppose this event is is occurring. Mm -hmm. Ajia doesn't even respond uh, right, to that. I don't know. She does. She doesn't even nod as right. Exactly. <laughs> so anyway, the uh, next doors sign says the jungle garden. Since Severian knows he won't be affected 
there the way he was in the sand garden, because Ajia says, you know, if you if you're affected one place, you're probably not affected someplace else. So Zverian so knows he won't be affected the way he was in the sand garden. So he says he wants to go there into the jungle garden. And Ajia says, but then we won't have time for the Garden of Delectation. Ajia is so anxious to go to the Garden of Delectation. Severian says, I had grown frightened of what I might find there or bring with me. <laughs> or bring with me. <laughs> okay. <laughs> when the door to the jungle garden opens outward, Severian feels a rush of highly humid air. Steaming, he says. The light is dim and green because it's filtering through the leaves. To get through the door, they have to amble through some lianas, vines. There's a big tree that's fallen across the path, rotten to punk. That's when it comes spongy and rotten, and you can use it to light stuff. There's a little sign on a fallen tree, like you're used to seeing at any botanical garden. This one says, Cisalpina sapan. That's a tree used for shipbuilding once upon a time from South Asia. It's also known as sapen wood or Indian redwood. Ajia says that a man I know says the jungle in the north has been dying for many centuries as the sun cools. But this is the jungle when the sun was young. So come on in. You want to see this place. It's a very end steps in and the door vanishes behind them. So thank you, thank you, Fabio, for okay. Thank you, thank you so much, James Craig. Uh, It's been a pleasure, and please, by all means, uh, invite me again. Absolutely, over here. Absolutely, and everyone, please again, tour.com. And if you look up just Wolf or or Fabio, you'll get all of the things that he's written for them, and. Be able and to there'll be, there'll be a link stuff. to it in the show notes, just like I promised. Of course. Yeah. Thank you so much, Fabio. This was great. Thank you, gentlemen. Goodbye, everyone. For your corrections, comments, and addenda, you can reach out to us on Facebook at the Rereading Wolf Podcast Facebook group or the subreddit, on email at rereadingwolf at gmail.com, on the YouTube channel, on Twitter, on Instagram, and on our upcoming African Swallow Network. No. <laughs> yes. Yes, it's true. No, just kidding. No, I'm not. The truth is, we're easy to find just by searching our name on your preferred connectivity channel, and there are links to them in the show notes. This thing doesn't really work without you guys. We're ready to talk about any chapter, no matter how far back. Bring it on. And as you can see from the Facebook posts, it doesn't necessarily have to be about a specific chapter. Tell us what we're doing well. Tell us what you want to see more of. Next episode, Severian and Agia wander around the sand garden in the jungle garden. Got recommendations for the outro music? I'm really curious what music people think would go with a chapter, even if I never end up using any of them. I usually have a couple of alternate choices that I really like, but didn't make the cut for a variety of potential reasons. So thank you to everyone for all you do, and we'll see you on the social webbings. Absolutely. Thanks, everybody. With the continents drift and the sun about to shift, will the ice cap drown us all or will we burn? We polluted what we own, will we reap what we have sown? Are we headed for the end or can we turn? 
bridges to our dreams The earth is bursting at the seams And in pain a childbirth screams As it gives life to what seems To either be an age that gleams Or simply lays there dying If this goes on, the life survives How can it? Out of the grave, oh, who will save our planet? Then went slack, the marionette lay dead While Hoover played with the motorcade The body slumped and bled The man who held the camera Disappeared into the crowd I said the hope of youth Fictitious truth lays covered in a shroud Then up walked Elmo Lincoln And he said, I beg your pardon But we left it oh so long ago The garden But yeah, if we need to re-need, re but yeah, if we re, uh, but yeah, if we re, I can't. <laughs> I always imagined Roucho and the prostitute. <laughs> Roucho and the prostitute. All right, cool. Okay, cool, cool, cool. We've been rewatching Community, and so my son and I are going cool, cool, cool. Just like all, <laughs> all the 